This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So, have you ever had that experience? Walking down the street, listening to music, lost in the world of your own soundtrack, and then you notice that someone else is doing the exact same thing, listening to their own soundtrack, starring in their own movie, living a parallel life, a life you will never get to see. And should you make an appearance, if ever, It would be as a blur of faces passing by on the sidewalk or the silhouette in a lit window at night. And did you know there's a word for that feeling? Sonder. Sonder is the awareness that everyone has a story. That all the random passersby you see around you, they all have an emotional experience just as rich as yours. Their lives are just as complex, and they have connections that sort of spiral outward, even though to you, they're just, you know, an extra in the background. This is John Koenig. He's the creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which essentially makes up words for emotions where words didn't previously exist, like Sonder and Lachesism. Lachesism, yeah, that is the hunger for disaster. Mm. You know, you don't want disaster to befall you. You don't want the hurricane to sweep through and rip up your neighborhood. But some small part of you does. So, okay, so how many uh, words are actually in your dictionary? Oh, I'd say about uh, maybe around 700, wow. something like that. That's a lot of words. Maybe do you, a little do, bit do less. You, so, so do you know all of them by memory now, by heart? Um, I will. Some of them I just wrote. Mm. So I think the more I sit with them, the more real they become to me. Mm. And I think that's really the the advantage of naming emotions, is that part of the sting behind a lot of our sadnesses is that they're mysterious. And we don't know how, you know, what the boundaries of them are. And so what I found is when you put a name to a feeling and try to pick it apart with, you know, as much precision as you can stand, it can actually diffuse the bomb a little bit. You know, whether it's if if you're afraid of death, um, there's a lot of different little components to that, right? It's, you know, your story coming to an end. And so that makes you reflect on what your story was. It's a kind of a fear of the void, you know, A, a fear of having to leave the world behind into the unknown. So most of us experience these kinds of emotions, whether we can define them or not. But those feelings, they're complicated. So on the show today, we're going to try to decode them and hear ideas about whether we have control over our emotions, what they actually are and why we feel them, and how things like language, culture, and context can shape our emotional lives. And for John Koenig, the language he invented to describe those emotions is a reminder that maybe someone else out there feels those things too. I became fascinated with just this idea of this huge book that defined all of the unknowables of the human experience. That um, I guess it would be a confirmation that uh, you are not alone in how you feel. Here's more from John Koenig on the TED stage. Uh, in Mandarin, they have a word, yu yi, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, uh, which means the longing to feel intensely again the way you did when you were a kid. In, uh, in Polish, they have a, a word, juska, uh, which is the kind of hypothetical conversation that you compulsively play out in your head. And, uh, and finally, in German, of course, in German, uh, they have a, a word called zielschmerz, uh, which is the dread of getting what you want. Now, I'm not sure if I would use any of these words as I go about my day, but I'm really glad they exist. But the only reason they exist is because I made them up. 
What is a monocopsis? Yeah, monocopsis. So that is the subtle but persistent feeling of being out of place. Hmm. Unable to recognize the ambient roar of your intended habitat hmm. in which you'd be fluidly, brilliantly, effortlessly at home. Yeah. I experience that virtually every single hour of my life. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Just a feeling of being out of place. Out of, like multiple times a day. Yeah. Uh, ellipsism. Ellipsism. The sadness that you'll never be able to know how history will turn out. Mm. You keep passing on the joke of being alive without ever really learning the punchline. So to the extent that you pass the baton of this story on to someone else, you never get to know how it ends. It's crazy, isn't it? But there's a, I don't know, there's a sweetness in there too. I don't know. If we uh, stay aware of our limitations, it kind of makes the rest of life just seem a little more like a miracle. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you can, I mean, the, right, these emotions, these feelings are, are mm -hmm. they're less obscure than we think. I mean, they're actually yeah. much more universal than obscure sorrows. Maybe universal yeah, sorrows. That's... The dictionary of universal <laughs> sorrows. That's true. There's certainly a universality in the responses to them. And I think one of the most poignant parts of this project is that I get emails from people describing their own feelings that they would love a word for. And often, you know, I'll get an, two emails in my inbox on the same day from people on opposite sides of the earth describing the same way in which they feel alone and, and they have no way of knowing that someone else is out there feeling the exact same thing on the exact same day. I'm lucky enough to be in a position that they share that with me. And then I can see that a lot of us are feeling a lot of these, a lot of these same things. John Koenig, he's the creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which will soon become a book. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So you study the history of emotions? Yeah, it sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? I mean, how can emotions possibly have histories. This is Tiffany Watt-Smith. She's a research fellow at the Center for the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University in London. You know, we talk about history as something which changes and it mutates over time, and yet we think of emotions as being these kind of universal fixed points in human experience. But I think emotions are a much more complicated thing than a simple reflex. They are malleable, they're flexible. And this question about where emotions come from, it isn't a new one. People have been coming up with theories for a long time. Thousands of years, actually. Um, you get them, you know, in Aristotle, you get them. There's an ancient Chinese encyclopedia called the Li Qi, and you get them in Descartes. But for most of modern history, they weren't actually called emotions. That word starts to be used in about 1830. I think before then you talked about passions and um, affections of the soul and surprises of the heart and all sorts of other things. So around the middle of the 20th century, a psychologist named Paul Ekman decided to research whether human emotions are universal. So first, he traveled around. Studying people from all around the globe. Asked them to fill out questionnaires. How were they portraying sadness? What sort of things did they say when they were in love? Showed them photographs of different facial expressions. People were able to identify and recognize particular emotional states. And after years of research, Paul Ekman concluded there are six core human emotions. Disgust, fear, surprise, happiness, anger, and sadness. And he argued that every human experiences these emotions in more or less the same way. And this idea became the foundation for how researchers and academics studied emotions. But there's a problem with this theory. The problem with this picture is it doesn't entirely capture what an emotion is. Tiffany picks up the idea from the TED stage. As a historian, I've long suspected that as language changes, our emotions do too. Let me tell you a story. It begins in a garret in the late 17th century in the Swiss university town of Basel. Inside, there's a dedicated student living some 60 miles away from home. He stops turning up to his lectures, and his friends come to visit, and they find him dejected and feverish, having heart palpitations, strange sores breaking out on his body. 
Doctors are called and they think it's so serious that prayers are said for him in the local church. And it's only really when they're preparing to return this young man home so that he can die that they realize what's going on. Because as they lift him onto the stretcher, his breathing becomes less labored. And by the time he's got to the gates of his hometown, he's almost entirely recovered. And that's when they realize that he's been suffering from a very powerful form of homesickness. Well, in 1688, a young doctor, Johannes Hoffer, heard of this case and others like it and christened the illness nostalgia. The last person to die from nostalgia was an American soldier fighting during the First World War in France. How is it possible that you could die from nostalgia less than 100 years ago? But today, not only does the word mean something different, a sickening for a lost time rather than a lost place, but homesickness itself is seen as less serious. This change seems to have happened in the early 20th century. But why? Was it the invention of telephones or the expansion of the railways? Was it perhaps the coming of modernity, with its celebration of restlessness and travel and progress, that made sickening for the familiar seem rather unambitious? You and I inherit that massive transformation in values, and it's one reason why we might not feel homesickness today as acutely as we used to. So if our notion of, of what an emotion is changes over time, right, then, then presumably our emotions are connected to context, to language, how we frame them. So can we reframe the way we think about what an emotion means? Yeah, I think this is, you know, to me, this is really the point of this work. You know, you can develop a certain emotional vocabulary in a quite an unthinking sort of way because you absorb all of this stuff that you're taught and from your culture and so on. And you know, once you become aware of it, it's possible to rethink some of those stories. So, for example, about happiness, you know, which one might feel rather pressurised into nowadays and feel rather inadequate if you don't feel happy enough all the time and whatever. And it's quite something of a relief, I think, to see other cultures um, yeah. of the past and understand that sadness might have been valuable and important. And in fact, you can look at self-help manuals in the 16th century and it's almost the opposite. You know, writers are trying to encourage people to get in touch with sadness because it's really important emotion. So once we understand the political and the cultural forces which have shaped the values that we attach to our emotions today, then it gives us the opportunity to rethink them and to question them and you know, allow ourselves to feel a bit differently. Coming up in just a moment, Tiffany explains how emotions don't just change across time. They also change from place to place. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Kumon, who ensures kids get the best possible foundation in math and reading, along with essential skills for success. In Kumon, kids as young as three advance through concepts incrementally, working daily and getting preschoolers kindergarten ready and challenging older kids. Parents will see their kids develop valuable traits like self-confidence and perseverance. Kumon, where smart kids get smarter. Visit kumon.com. Thanks also to Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom, connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing 25 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today and meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Zoom.us. This week on Invisibilia, we ask, what's the best way to lose? We look for clues in beekeeping, grammar, and in my 74-year-old mom's desire to jump out of an airplane. All right, guys, I'm going to start getting load one trained up. I'm so excited. I'm Hannah Rosen. Join us. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, decoding our emotions. And historian Tiffany Watt-Smith says that emotions not only differ across time, but they also vary from country to country. As she explained from the TED stage. 
One of my favorite emotions is a Japanese word, amai. Amai is a very common word in Japan, but it is actually quite hard to translate. It means something like the, the pleasure that you get when you're able to temporarily hand over responsibility for your life to someone else. Now, anthropologists suggest that one reason why this word might have been named and celebrated in Japan is because of that country's traditionally collectivist culture. Whereas the feeling of dependency may be more fraught amongst English speakers who have learned to value self sufficiency and individualism. What might our emotional languages tell us, not just about what we feel, but about what we value most? Tiffany, is the, is the emotional life of an English speaker substantially different from the emotional life of a Japanese speaker, for example? I think this is a, a curious question, and it's easy to overstate.、Um, on the one hand, it's possible for me to learn a Japanese word like amai, which I talk about in the TED talk, and think, yes, I, I recognize that emotion. But at the same time, it's remote enough that I might not let that feeling come to the foreground of my mind, and therefore it doesn't become part of my. Experience in quite the same way as it would do if I definitely had a word for it. Right. But I mean, I guess I always assume that, like, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, but if someone dies, like if a child dies, a parent grieves and experiences sadness. Or if a child is born healthy, a parent or a caregiver experiences happiness. Or if somebody steals your cow or fires you from your job, you experience anger. Right? Like、mm. those feel pretty universal. Like that certain experiences trigger a feeling that most of us feel. Yeah, and I don't disagree that、um, there would be a lot of common ground in those emotional experiences, but there is also quite a lot of diversity in them, too. I'm just thinking there is a tribe in Ghana called the Koma tribe where it's actually. Common for grandchildren to laugh and joke at the funeral of their grandparents, and、oh, actually,、wow. in some cases, to steal the corpse and、uh, <laughs> wow. perform practical jokes with it.、Yeah. Um, that's part of the funerary activities. That's what happens. And in、mm. fact, I mean, there are some funerals that I've been to where people have been encouraged to laugh. Yeah, and yeah, right. Feel, you know, so actually, it's easy to look for common ground, but also perhaps it's important not to do that at the expense of recognizing differences. and Probably in time, there'll be a different way of thinking about emotions all over again. Tiffany Watt Smith, she's a research fellow at the Center for the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University of London. You can see her full talk at TED.com. When you think about the The science of emotions. What was like the traditional, you know, scientific view of them? Well, when I entered graduate school, the assumption was that your brain comes pre wired with the so called basic emotions anger, sadness, fear, disgust, happiness, and surprise. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a professor of psychology at Northeastern and a researcher at Harvard Medical School. And Lisa's at the forefront of changing, even upending, some of our old assumptions about emotions. The assumption is that,、um, that, that our brains come pre wired to make these emotions, and that when something trips one of these circuits, you know, let's say fear, that、um, we will、um, have a very specific physical response. Heart rate will go up, and maybe we'll freeze. Um, our faces will make a particular expression that displays the emotion on the face for others to see and recognize universally, and that that will reveal to you, kind of like a fingerprint,、uh, what emotional state someone is in. And, and do you think that's true? I mean, do, do emotions apply to all people universally、uh, across the board? No, they don't.、Huh. We know that all of these emotion categories. Appear in many cultures, but they also fail to appear in some cultures. For example, sadness doesn't occur in Tahitian, and、um, in Russian, there are multiple sadnesses, not just one. And the point is that, you know, no set of physical sensations has a purely psychological meaning that is constant across 
all instances and all people. People often phrase the question as to say, does a human brain come pre-wired with the capacity to make anger, sadness, fear, disgust, and so on? And the answer is no. Lisa Feldman Barrett spoke about her ideas from the TED stage. My research lab sits about a mile from where several bombs exploded during the Boston Marathon in 2013. The surviving bomber, Zakhar Sarnayev of Chechnya, was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. Now, when a jury has to make the decision between life in prison and the death penalty, they base their decision largely on whether or not the defendant feels remorseful for his actions. Tsarnaev spoke words of apology, but when jurors looked at his face, all they saw was a stone-faced stare. Now, Tsarnaev is guilty. He murdered and maimed innocent people, and I'm not here to debate that. But as a scientist, I have to tell you that jurors do not and cannot detect remorse or any other emotion in anybody ever. Neither can I, and neither can you. And that's because emotions are not what we think they are. I have studied emotions as a scientist for the past 25 years, and in my lab, we have probed human faces by measuring electrical signals that cause your facial muscles to contract to make facial expressions. We have scrutinized the human body in emotion. We have analyzed hundreds of physiology studies involving thousands of test subjects. And the results of, these, of all of this research is overwhelmingly consistent. Emotions are guesses. The way that we see emotions in others are deeply rooted in predictions, right? So to us, it feels like we just look at someone's face and we just read the emotion that's there in their facial expressions the way that we would read words on a page. But actually, under the hood, your brain is predicting. It's using past experience based on similar situations to try to make meaning. So the lesson here is that emotions that you seem to detect in other people actually come in part from what's inside your own head. So we think, we think that we have this intuitive ability to sense how someone's feeling just by looking at them, right? We make assumptions about how people are feeling based on, on, on their facial, you know, micro movements, micro mm -hmm. movements right? Mm -hmm. Or their body sure. language. And, sure. and, and, and what you're saying is that that is actually, there's no scientific basis in making that prediction, except that we're not always wrong. In fact, we're, we're often right. And we're, we're out, we often do this pretty well. So is that just because we're lucky? Here's what we know. We know that there's no single objective fingerprint, single objective measure for any emotion that holds across instances, across people, across cultures. My husband, for example, makes a full-on scowling face when he is thinking very deeply. Hmm. Um, people often will say to him, are you angry? And he'll say, no, I'm not angry, I'm thinking. Hmm. And it's really tempting, you know, to believe that your confidence that you're right means that you can read people beautifully. But the fact is, when you perceive emotion in someone else, you're just guessing. Mm. Is it ever possible to guess correctly? I would say, of course it's possible to guess correctly. We do it all the time. Except you're guessing. Well, sure, but I'm guessing when I give you a dollar bill that you'll accept it, too, as money. It's just a pretty good guess. A lot of the time, our guesses are right, but sometimes our guesses are drastically wrong. For example, women over the age of 65 uh, are more likely to die of a heart attack than men. And the reason why, one reason why, is that when they show up to emergency rooms with symptoms, they and their physicians um, believe that they are anxious, that they're experiencing anxiety. And so they send women home who have a heart attack and die instead of sending them for tests, uh, as they're more likely to do with a man. And so, again, uh, a drastic uh, misperception and there are real consequences for that. And so here's my concern. Tech companies, which shall remain nameless, well, maybe not, you know, Google, Facebook, 
um, are spending millions of research dollars to build emotion detection systems, and they are fundamentally asking the wrong question because they're trying to detect emotions in the face and the body, but emotions aren't in your face and body. Physical movements have no emotional meaning. We have to make them meaningful. A human or something else has to connect them to the context, and that makes them meaningful. That's how we know that, you know, a smile might mean sadness, and a cry might mean happiness, and a stoic, still face might mean、uh, that you are angrily plotting the demise of your enemy. Now. If I haven't already,、uh, you know, gone out on a limb, I'll just edge out on that limb a little further and tell you that the way that you experience your own emotion is exactly the same process. Your brain is basically making predictions, guesses that it's constructing in the moment, with billions of neurons working together. Okay, so what I'm wondering is. If our emotions,、uh, like fear or, or anger, and, and all the others are, you know, as, as you say, just guesses or, or predictions, do they have any real intrinsic meaning? Well, I think I would answer that question in two parts. If you're asking me, does anger have an intrinsic meaning? I would say no, it has no intrinsic meaning. If you say, does an instance of anger? Have an intrinsic meaning in a particular situation. I might be tempted to more likely say, yes, for you in that situation, anger is real. It's very real. It's real in the same way that money is real. It's real in the same way that even something like the presidency. You know, president has powers not because. The president is endowed with those powers by nature, but because we all agree、right. that the president has powers, right?、Um, that was even true of kings and queens.、Right. People used to believe they had intrinsic powers from God, but actually, they just had power because we all just agreed that they had power, and then they did. So it's real because we believe it's real. Yeah. Not only do we believe it's real, I would say we believe it's real, and so it becomes real because、hmm. we believe it's real. It's a little bit like. Your question of、um, everybody's question really is:、um, emotions are emotions hardwired, or are they cultural、um, artifacts? And I would say, well, that's a false dichotomy. They are cultural artifacts that are made in your brain. Your brain is a cultural artifact to some extent. You have the kind of brain that allows us to transmit culture by wiring the brains of the next generation to make perceptions and experiences in, in the same way that we do. And so, similarly, I would say. Emotions are real; they're absolutely real, but they are real in a very situated way because we've learned and agree on how to make sense of particular sensations in particular situations. So, in that sense, they really are a function of our collective imagination. Psychologist and researcher Lisa Feldman Barrett. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Um, what's the what's the connection between lying and、uh, our emotions? When we lie to cover up our own transgressions,、uh, you have this、uh, fear of being caught, and also you have this shame and guilt, and also the delight they associate with that. This is Kang Li.、Uh, I study developmental neuroscience with a special focus on emotion, lie telling. In children and their adults, and Kang says specifically when kids lie, they learn pretty early on how to hide all of these emotions and control their facial expressions. You have to manage all your facial expressions, your body language, the words you are going to choose to make your lies stick. So, so I guess I should mention Kang that、uh, yeah, just like a couple of days ago. The remote control on our Google Chrome thing was broken.、Mm-hmm. Like it was peeled back.、Mm-hmm. Like like you use you use like you know jaws of steel to peel it back. And I looked at my kids. I said, "What happened?" And they both looked at me and said, "I don't know." I said, "You don't know what happened to this remote control?" And they said, "No." I said, "Did you break it?" "No." "Did you touch it?" 
yes, but we didn't break it. Exactly. Yeah, and they, 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 when they answer these questions, they actually look right into your eyes, right? They did not actually avert their eyes, right? Right so. into my eyes. No, <laughs> I didn't do it. Yes, indeed. And then the majority of kids, when they lie, they actually look into your face and very seriously say, no, I'm talking about very young kids. This could be two years old or three years old. So they are very good at managing their facial expressions. Now, remember how Lisa Feldman Barrett just said that our ability to detect emotions in other people is unreliable? And that a facial expression doesn't necessarily tell you much about how someone's feeling? Well, Khan believes there might be a way to detect emotions without using our eyes. Kong Lee explains his research from the TED stage. We know that underneath our facial skin, there's a rich network of blood vessels. When we experience different emotions, our facial blood flow changes subtly. So by looking at facial blood flow changes, we can reveal people's hidden emotions. We have developed a new imaging technology we call transdermal optical imaging. To do so, we use a regular video camera to record people when people experience various hidden emotions. And then, using our image processing technology, we can extract transdermal images of facial blood flow changes. And using this technology, we can now reveal the hidden emotion associated with lying and therefore detect people's lies with an accuracy at about 85%. So, so let me see if I understand this correctly. You can train a, a video camera onto a human face, mm-hmm. and then with your technology, you can analyze uh, facial blood flow, and then mm-hmm. that indicates how a person is feeling with an accuracy rate of 85% at, at, when it comes to lying. Mm-hmm. Yes. But can you do that with other emotions? Well, right, right now we can measure your emotion at about 93% accuracy to differentiate between three states, positive, neutral, and negative. And then with regard to specific emotions, depends on the situations. For example, disgust, we can do about 89% accuracy. But some other emotions are not very good. Fear. Fear is the most difficult one, and uh, it's about 64%. But still, you know, so we have a long way to go to be able to pick up information from your face to say, ah, you know, guy now is he's experiencing fear or something like that. In a minute, just how Kong Lee's technology works and whether we can actually keep our emotions private ever again. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to LegalZoom. March is National Small Business Month at LegalZoom, and they want you to celebrate by becoming your own boss. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but they know you need to tap into the right resources to run a successful business. Go to LegalZoom.com startup to download a free business startup kit. This offer is only available in March. After that, you can still enjoy special savings by using code RADIOHOUR at LegalZoom.com. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. Thanks also to ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash RadioHour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Ever get to Friday, look back on the week, and say to yourself, what just happened? I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute where every Friday we catch up on the news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, decoding our emotions. 
And we were just hearing from psychologist Kong Lee describe a new technology that he's created in his lab by using something called transdermal optical imaging. Yes, and uh, the technology actually is very simple. So basically, it starts with our skin, which is translucent. So when light's coming into your face, it does not bounce back right away. So it actually penetrates to the deeper layers of our face. And just by using a regular video camera to record a face? You know, the cameras on our iPhone is amazingly good. That video footage, when it's run through Kong's machine learning algorithms, it can pick up a lot of physiological clues under our skin. So they actually can pick up these reflections from your face. But what are they actually picking up? Okay. So uh, the vascular system and the heartbeat, heartbeat variability, which is extremely important to, to, to measure your stress. And then you have breathing. So these are very, very good indications of how much stress you are in. And they all come to modulate the blood flows on your whole body. And all these activities comes out as a symphony, basically, on your face. And from there, what we are doing right now is to basically decode it, like decipher these secrets coming out of your face to know what's going on in your physiological system. And over time, Kang has found markers for what happens in our bodies when we're, say, disgusted or surprised or angry. And I know what you're thinking. We just heard Lisa Feldman Barrett say that universal emotions don't exist and that emotions vary based on culture and context. And for the most part, Kong, well, he says... Yeah, so I, I agree with Lisa. Kong do appraisal is a very, very important part of our emotional experiences. So, for example, the same physiological activities, but in two different situations, would give rise to entirely different emotional experiences. So let's say you, you, you have short of breath, you know, your heart rate is pumping. In one situation is you are fearful, but the other situation, maybe you are in love. So, and this is all about you making this cognitive appraisal of the situation. So is that why your team is still at like 64% accuracy when it comes to fear? Because the, the physical markers, the physiological markers for fear are so much harder to distinguish with like falling in love or, or anger. Yes, we, we tend to think about emotions as kind of natural, instinctive reactions. But rather, the brain plays a very important role to say, oh, I'm falling in love. That's why my heart quickens. You know, I start to sweat. You know, my face turns red. But on the other hand, you may say, ah, I just feel angry. My heart quickens. Uh, my face turns red. And my breathing becomes faster. Something like that. But fortunately, though, we as humans, tend to respond to a host of things in a very similar way. And because of this, then you say, okay, you know, the, these are the signatures of disgust. These are the signatures of joy. I mean, if, in fact, you can connect certain physiological signals to specific emotions, surely it has to be adjusted for cultural context, right? Because there are some cultures that we, we know of that don't experience sadness because they don't have the language. The word doesn't exist. Totally. I mean, just I grew up in China. So and then I started to study psychology in college. And one of the words I came across was depression in English. Hmm. And I had no idea what depression was. Because in China, in terms of diagnosis, it's called the love sickness. Huh. So basically, the, the appraisal of the psychiatrist about your depression is not because you are biochemical imbalance, but just simply you cannot find a partner for life. Wow. So just think about this. This is just one simple example. Yeah. There are many, many other cultures. They may have language for certain emotions, but not for some others. So these differences must come to play. So essentially... The thinking is that over time, as this technology gets better and better, and as the appraisals really do match the physiological signals, you can adjust this for, for, for different cultures and in different contexts. 
Oh, certainly. So that what we're doing now actually is not only adjust according to your culture. We are adjusting according to you. Hmm. Just imagine a few years down the road, there is a robot at home. And your robot basically is videotaping you and extracting physiological activities from you by re- remotely using our technology, for example. And then they figure out, you know, in these kind of situations, oh, that's when you are happily reading books to your kids. Hmm. This situation, you know, you get frustrated when you burn your toast or something yeah. like this, right? They learn from your past information about you, and then they can predict much, much better huh. about your personal emotional experiences. Okay, so, so there could be in the future a robot in your house that's just constantly assessing you based on your face and the and what's going on behind your skin and just that that could be a reality in the future oh yeah definitely it's it's in the very very near future not remote future so i don't want that future go back go back to the past <laughs> Why? go back future that... it's scared that scares me i don't want a robot knowing my emotions really because yeah. i i thought this would be good you know, I discovered that the activities we can pick up are very, very useful for monitoring our health. For example, you know, we by looking at the facial blood flow changes, we discuss some people have arrhythmia, and we can tell them their blood pressures as well. And from there, we actually now can measure your stress very accurately. So this is, to me, is very, very useful. And from there... I'm just thinking about my parents, right? They're in China, so they know they they by themselves, and they are in their 90s, you know. And uh, sometimes they become lonely. So I try to call them every day, but it's still only like 10, 15 minutes. But they want to sometimes have conversations with someone. Hmm. So this is what I'm kind of envisaging, you know, creating a robot for my parents so they can converse them about their inner emotions. Yeah. And sometimes they may feel depressed a little bit, and then the robot can help them to lift their spirit up. That's Kang Lee. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Musicians are people who have a natural ability to exist within the world of emotions and in some way or another try and relate that to other worlds that seem to present themselves. But certainly performers are not scared of emotions, which of course many people are. This is Michael Tilson Thomas. He's the music director for the San Francisco Symphony. We find the music an easier, more comfortable place for us to reveal what we're really feeling. Things that we'd think, oh, oh, that's far too embarrassing for me to put into words I'll seem too sappy or sentimental or whatever. But inside of the music, it's possible for us to confess to those things in a way that's very generous, very real, and allows us to hold on to our sense of balance with the bigger picture of the whole world. What do you feel when you hear classical music? When I hear classical music, I experience overlapping streams of different senses of time, different kinds of forces operative inside of music, which it seems to me very much match up to the sort of uh, way in which our basic psyche is... uh, constructed you know when we when we're looking at the world we're making a judgment how much is that an intellectual decision how much is that a completely instinctive emotional impression how much do we trust our heads how much do we trust our hearts from moment to moment and music is constantly shifting in its examination of those forces and of course music has a whole language as part of itself which is called harmony which since many hundreds of years has been exploring the complexity of uh, emotional states and the way it's possible for you to feel happy, apprehensive, resentful, expectant, all at the same time. 
And for classical music, that language of emotion has evolved over centuries and centuries, as Michael Tilson Thomas explained from the TED stage. Every musician strikes a different balance between faith and reason, instinct and intelligence, and every musical era had different priorities of these things, different things to pass on, different what's and how's. So in the first eight centuries or so of this tradition, the big what was to praise God. And by the 1400s, music was being written that tried to mirror God's mind as could be seen in the design of the night sky. The how was a style called polyphony, music of many independently moving voices that suggested the way the planets seemed to move in Ptolemy's geocentric universe. This was truly the music of the spheres. This is the kind of music that Leonardo da Vinci would have known, and perhaps its tremendous intellectual perfection and serenity meant that something new had to happen, a radical new move, which in 1600 is what did happen. This, of course, was the birth of opera, and its development put music on a radical new course. The what now was not to mirror the mind of God, but to follow the emotional turbulence of man. And the how was harmony, stacking up the pitches to form chords. And the chords, it turned out, were capable of representing an incredible varieties of emotions. And the basic chords were the ones we still have with us, the triads, either the major one, which we think is happy, or the minor one, which we perceive as sad. But what's the actual difference between these two chords? It's just these two notes in the middle, right? It's either E natural at uh, 659 vibrations per second, or E-flat at 622. So the big difference between human happiness and sadness, 37 freaking vibrations. Can you describe a piece of music that um, makes you sad? Well, there are different kinds of sadness. There's music that expresses reactions to some tragic circumstance. And there are pieces by Mahler and Beethoven which explore this kind of craggy, oh my God, no, 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 sort of world of denial. And they are sad in a, in a conflictful sort of way. But there's also music that is sad in a more radiant, transcendent way. And I find it so interesting that very often when people experience something which is profoundly beautiful, which seems to be right on the edge of the highest perfection one can imagine, that they have this experience of tears coming into their eyes. They, maybe they're smiling, but they still have tears in their eyes. I've always asked myself, why is that? And I think it's because in the contemplation of something that is perfection, that something in our mortal nature says, and this can't possibly last as much as I would like to hold on to this and be in it forever. I, I, I know that that can't be so. So there's this sense of loss and some kind of underlying sense of longing, of wishing one could somehow hold on to it or be assured of returning to it. As man began to understand more his complex and ambivalent nature, harmony grew more complex to reflect it. 
turns out it was capable of expressing emotions beyond the ability of words. Now, with all this possibility, music, classical music really took off. It's the time in which the big forms began to arise, and the effects of technology began to be felt also, because printing put music, the scores, the code books of music, into the hands of performers everywhere. And new and improved instruments made the age of the virtuoso possible. This is when those big forms arose, the symphonies, the sonatas, the concertos. And in these big architectures of time, composers like Beethoven could share the insights of a lifetime. A piece like Beethoven's Fifth, basically witnessing how it was possible for him to go from sorrow and anger Over the course of a half an hour, step by exacting step of his route to the moment when he could make it across to joy. Thank you. That's Michael Tilson Thomas. He's the co-founder and artistic director of the New World Symphony in Miami and conductor laureate of the London Symphony. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, Decoding Our Emotions. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. You can do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. And one more quick thing. If you like the TED Radio Hour, you should check out a new podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant. Adam's an organizational psychologist and TED speaker who we've had on the show before. And in Work Life, he goes inside some of the most unconventional workplaces to explore the ideas that we can all use to make work more meaningful and creative. It's available now, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts.